Welcome back to the podcast series Behind the Screens, hosted by me, Jock Glover, Strategic Relationships Director here at Square Mile Investment Consulting and Research. As you know, in this series of podcasts, we meet members of the investment teams from across the asset management industry whose funds we rate and spend 15 minutes or so chatting to them to get some insight into their thinking. This week, I'm delighted to say that our guest is Sharat Shroff, who's the lead manager of the £290 million Matthews Pacific Tiger Fund. The fund managers are focused on delivering long-term capital appreciation through a portfolio of Asian equities, excluding Japan, and the fund has been awarded a AA rating by the Square Mile analysts. Sharat, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jack. Well, it's lovely to have you too. Now, as I said in the introduction there, you are focused on running a portfolio that's long-term capital appreciation through a portfolio of Asian equities. Um, how do you build that that portfolio? Is it, it's, I think, let me get this right, having spoken to the analysts, you like growth companies, but durable business models, and you like to hold them for long periods of time. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, we tend to focus on identifying companies that we think are gaining stature and share in their respective ecosystems. Uh, we try to look for businesses typically in the small, mid-size area, if we can find them. And if we have done our jobs right, then many of these smaller to mid-size firms will eventually grow and become larger cap names. Uh, and so their footprint continues to expand and in the process, deliver value to our investors. Um, so that's the gist of what we try to do in this particular strategy. And in terms of longer term in those time horizons, what, what does that look like? What does that sound like? In general, I'd say that it's three to five years. Um, but I can also share with you that there are several holdings within the strategy that have been a part of this uh, portfolio for over a decade. You know, these okay. are companies. Yeah, I mean, these are companies where management teams have continued to reinvent themselves and continuously find newer growth areas. And so we have felt no reason to just part ways with these businesses because they've just continued to deliver. So happy to keep running your winners if they keep winning and they keep delivering. Um, and uh, and overall, we're looking for growth over three to five years plus in terms of uh, the outlook from the companies. Yes. Perfect. Cool. Um, and you're part of a team. There's uh, You've got a couple of other co-managers, I think three other co-managers, if I'm right. Um, how do you as a team, split your day up in terms of who does the research, who's doing internal meetings, who's managing the team? How does that all work? How does, how does that all pull together as a, as a breakdown? You know, we look at ourselves and we describe us as analysts first and portfolio managers next. So what that means is that the four of us are rolling up our sleeves, getting into the trenches and analyzing companies and carrying out primary research by ourselves. We are not relying on uh, the sell side. We are not relying on others to necessarily do the job. When I think of how a day might be structured, you know, I I'd, I'd think of a process of consuming research, i.e. we read a lot. I read a lot. There's annual reports. There's all kinds of news that are coming at me. 
uh, we listen to earnings calls, we listen to management teams. So there's a lot of consumption of research that happens. After that consumption has taken place, we then move on to the process of creating, i.e. putting together portfolios, uh, taking decisions of what to do with the research that we have just consumed, uh, compiling a list of questions that we might be raising with other members of our team or even with uh, CEOs and CFOs. Uh, and then the final thing I'd say after having done the consumption, the creation is a process of connecting. Uh, and that connecting could be with the rest of the members of the Matthews research family or reaching out to the management teams in Asia or other emerging markets uh, just to you know, confirm our hypothesis, deny our hypothesis, uh, and test and retest some of the underwriting that we are planning to do. So it's a three-part process, really. You, know, you consume, you create, and then you eventually connect. Uh, with the all with the hope of building portfolios that can deliver in the medium to long term. And as a team, do you all have to agree before something goes into the portfolio, or do different people have different uh, responsibilities sector-wise, or, or, or is it just you that makes the final decision? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you, you know, the, the individuals that are working on Pacific Tiger strategy, they each have their strengths that they bring to bear for our shareholders. But at the end of the day, the final decision is getting taken by Imbok Song and myself. Yep. Um, we both share the responsibility of uh, you know coming to terms on which ideas are getting implemented when and how. But I also want to be very clear here in saying that, you know, for example, take the case of Andrew Maddock. He's a co-manager on the fund, but he's got a lot of experience, particularly when it comes to China. And so when he says something, his voice carries a lot of weight, um, and, and we let that get reflected appropriately in the in the strategy. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, and we've talked about how the fact that you're very much looking for engines of growth coming out of these companies. Growth's had a pretty rough ride over the course of the last uh, 18 months or so, as so you've had a bit of a... Uh, a reversion in the market to more value-oriented strategies. If someone was to come to you today and say, why, why, why Asian growth? What would you say to them in terms of uh, the opportunity set, the themes that you see out there in the market at the moment? You know, the thing that really excites me when I look at the Asian economies today is the formation of new markets. What do I mean when I say that? You know, formation of new markets that are being aided by the intersection of technology and rising household incomes. To me, when these two things come together, it creates fertile grounds for entrepreneurs uh, and businessmen to uh, bring their craft and to create new ideas that start resonating. Uh, and because you have households that are starting to experience growth in their, in their uh, wealth, they're also able to indulge. So it becomes a virtuous circle. Um, and that's what becomes an exciting proposition for investors like myself. So even though we've had a, a, a year or two of setbacks when it comes to growth-oriented investing, you know, again, if you take a three to five-year perspective, uh, I, I don't think that those tailwinds have necessarily gone away. Uh, in fact, I am traveling through China at the moment. Um, and what I'm witnessing, it, it just continues to underscore the point that uh, many of these 
uh, innovative business models are starting to get unleashed on the uh, ecosystem, on the capital markets in Asia. Uh, and, and that makes us quite excited to participate and to bring a few of them for our shareholders. I think well, the first manager we've had who's been on the road uh, when we've done one of these podcasts, and it's even more exciting to hear you're in China at the moment. So um, that is news uh, and very exciting. Um, what's, uh, well, let's stay on China for a second, if we may. Lots of uh, people have had a pretty poor investment experience in China over the last 18 months. Um, what are the opportunities that you see in terms of themes in China? And I suppose that leads perhaps to themes in the wider region that you're you're investing in, whether China is driving them or they're driving China or a mixture of both. Yeah, I mean, I think you know China has had a difficult ride for the last two to three years. Uh, and, and a lot of that has to do with the onset of COVID. We are now looking at an economy that is slowly starting to recover. Uh, the pace of recovery may not have been as robust as many investors would have anticipated, but uh, nonetheless, you know, when I am going through my meetings, uh, and it's still the second day here, uh, what I am noticing is a cautious sense of optimism. You know, people are looking forward to um, uh, the consumer coming back, and people are, you know, management teams are continuing to pursue their ideas. Uh, of investing in research, investing in growth and building out capacities. Uh, so I'd say that when you're looking for themes, when you're looking for opportunities to, opportunities, uh, opportunities to invest in, our focus very much is on domestically oriented business models. Um, and what I mean by domestically oriented business models, you know, it tends to reflect in areas like consumption, innovation, wealth management, industrial advancement, uh, healthcare to a certain degree, these are the kind of sectors that we tend to emphasize. Uh, and there are reasons to think that the capital markets in Asia have continued to broaden and deepen in all of these four or five segments that I just mentioned to you. Uh, so with with that deepening and with that broadening as minority shareholders, uh, you know, we are able to find many more companies that we can potentially invest in. And, and that's what's keeping us excited. Uh, to think about the next three to five years or even take a slightly longer-term perspective. And you talked earlier about how that formation of new markets through the mixture of new technology and rising incomes was an opportunity as well. Um, is there sort of anything specific in terms of technology? Obviously, the American markets have been driven by the, the big seven and AI and stuff like that. Is that what you're seeing in Asia as well, or is it much earlier stage technology, or is it um, the semiconductors driving, you know, the sales of Microsoft, or how does how does that all fit together? Yeah, I mean, look, let, let me share with you an example, um, and and that has to do with the adoption of uh, EV cars. Yeah, you know, the pace of adoption in China has just been stupendous. Um, I've met with a couple of companies already, and I've sat in you know some new uh, uh, companies that are starting to come out with their own uh, product offerings for the consumer uh, and and what you are seeing here is is uh, acceleration uh, that is uh, starting to happen the last numbers that i've that have been reported would indicate that 40% of the sales that took place in august were 
new energy vehicles. So that's a, a breakneck speed, a breakneck speed of adoption, which is far ahead of anywhere else in the globe. And so that's in my mind, you know, innovation, it's uh, engineering, it's uh, a willingness to take capital from the markets and then come up with product ideas that are starting to resonate with the uh, with the Chinese consumer at price tags that are also reasonably affordable. You know, that's really the key. So it's all of those things coming together. And that's just one example of innovation that is taking place. Uh, likewise, you know, when it comes to the internet economy, that itself has has gone through a massive adoption phase uh, and it's becoming a, a, a lot more surgical in new kind of business models that are presenting themselves. Uh, you know, if you talk about healthcare, again, an attempt to go after many of these lifestyle diseases um, and trying to come up with, uh, you know, drugs that are affordable. Uh, I think these are just some small examples of innovation. They are not necessarily semiconductors like we see in the in the United States, but uh, nonetheless, innovation uh, in in its own right. But but in in a market uh, or with populations that are increasing at a significant rate, their middle classes those become significant opportunities for for companies to sell into. I guess that's exactly the point. Um, you, you know, I, I've seen cars the EV car example, where they're looking to bring the costs down to roughly $25,000, know, $20,000, And yet when you sit and drive those cars, it, it feels spacious, it feels luxurious. Um, you know, obviously, I haven't gone through all the safety ratings, so I can't really comment on those. But um, that's the, the, the innovation of how to bring the cost structures down and to your point, make it affordable so that it gets adapted by or uh, adopted by a huge and growing middle class. Brilliant. Um, thank you for that. And I suppose the flip side of it, what is it that as a as a fund manager running money in Asia, what is it that keeps you awake at night? What is it that you worry about that's going to happen, that's going to derail your investment thesis and, and the way you... Uh, generate returns for shareholders. Jock, when we are looking for companies to add to the portfolio, ideally we want to find businesses that allow us to sleep well at night. Um, but be that as it may, <laughs> you know, one of the things that is increasingly being talked about, you know, for the last two to three years, is this concept of de-risking. Uh, whether it is de-risking of supply chains, whether it is uh, de-risking of capital flows technology flows and things of that nature, uh, the worry would be that does de-risking evolve into deglobalization, uh, and, and that could be a, a challenge not just for emerging markets, Asian markets, it's actually a negative outcome for consumers even in, in the US or even in Europe, uh, because the world has benefited by you know, all of these different economies coming together. Uh, and so if you continue to go down this track of uh, starting to throw more friction into uh, technological advancement, then that would be an issue which certainly Asian companies would have to contend with. But I would reckon that even for consumers in the West, cannot be a, a terrific outcome. So that would, be, that would be something that you know one has to watch out for. Um, I continue to also feel that 
the risk of policy missteps you know should there be one whether it is monetary policies or fiscal policies or uh, you know other kind of decisions that are get that get taken in an ad hoc manner uh, that can set the progress back by a few years and that's yeah. never a, an appetizing thought thank you um, I'm conscious of time. Uh, I'm going to ask you one final question. You have already given me one statistic, which was that the number of Chinese uh, car purchases in August was 40% electric, which I think is a staggering statistic in its own right. Um, but have you got another interesting statistic for the week that we can finish on that people can go away and have a think about and think, crikey, I never, never realised that? I don't know if this is necessarily a statistic from the week, but uh, you know, in, in going through my research, what I've noticed more recently is the number of unicorns in India, which stands at seventy, if if my if my if the number is accurate. Um, you know, when I mentioned about innovation, when I mentioned about uh, entrepreneurs putting their energies to work and coming up with all these ideas, uh, you've seen that happen not just in in China, but you are increasingly seeing that happen in a market like India, and so. 70 unicorns, uh, and these are all in a variety of different sectors. And just to find what your, your definition of a unicorn is, the share price has gone up? No, no, no. These are uh, private companies okay. uh, that that could potentially have, uh, you know, huge valuations, you know, billion dollars or plus of got valuations. Uh, but these are still private businesses. Okay, got it. Um, yeah. And so... For a country like India to have those many unicorns that are, that are now starting to flourish, uh, it, it just tells you that um, the opportunity set is there. The capital is slowly starting to find its way. And the ambition and aspiration of the consumers will make sure that these tailwinds continue to blow hard so that these unicorns, you know, not everyone will succeed, but many of them will eventually succeed and occupy a significant footprint in, uh, in the global economy. Wonderful. Well, that's a, a great statistic to fi- finish on, that there's 70 private companies in India that have got valuations of a billion plus and have still got that growth opportunity there. Um, I think that's a, a fantastic way to finish. So um, all that remains is for me uh, to thank you, Sharat, for, uh, for for dialing into this from China. That is the first for us um, and, um, and for all of your thoughts and your insights today. Um, and to thank the listeners for your support. Uh, I say it every week. No one has done it yet, but if you want to contact us, please do so either through our webpage, www.squaremileresearch.com, or by emailing us at info at squaremileresearch.com. This podcast is only aimed at professional advisors and regulated firms and should not be passed on to or relied upon by any other persons. It is not intended for retail investors who should obtain professional or specialist advice before taking or refraining from any action on the basis of this podcast. Remembering past performance is not an indication of future performance. It is published by and remains the copyright of Squaremart Investment Consulting and Research. Squaremart makes no warranties or representations regarding the accuracy or completeness of the information contained herein. This podcast represents the views and forecasts of Squaremart at the date of issue and may be subject to change without reference or notification to you. Nothing in this podcast shall be deemed to constitute a regulated activity or an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity, and it is not a recommendation to buy or sell any funds or investments that are mentioned during this podcast. Thank you.